the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I was just completely terrified of my father at that point. And my father would be very violent with me, and then he would do the apology thing, and, oh, Bumper, come here, and, oh, it's okay, buddy, I love you. And then it was just very, you know, typical gaslighting, typical <laughs> sociopathy, very, ooh, you know, uh, hot and cold. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And a big heads up to our listeners. This is part one of a three-part story. It's that good, guys. It's that good. It's so... It's that compelling. It's so fucking good. And it's probably like the best first degree we've ever had in the history of our podcast. So if you want to binge, just wait a couple weeks and listen to it all together. But if you want to jump right in, then we're going to jump right in. So Billy, what day is it today? All right. Now we've got a lot of days today. National Secondhand Wardrobe Day. Oh, like a thrift shop. Like a vintage thrift shop type of thing. Love a thrift shop. National Whiskey Sour Day. Mm. Okay. I've made a few whiskey sours for my jacktails. I like a whiskey rocks, man. I don't want to add any nope. tart you, things mm, to it. Mm, you haven't had mine with a nice little egg white. It's frothy and delicious. I will try yours. Thank you. Now, now this is for anybody who is listening in Australia. We know it's it's hard to get us in Australia. Yes. But apparently this is a thing. It's National Lamington Day, which are those bloody poofy woolly biscuits. Lamingtons, Bloody? which is what Lord Lamington called these Australian cakes that Ew. are butter or sponge cakes coated or dipped in chocolate and then covered with coconut. Where'd the blood come from? Bloody like the way that they say that in Britain. I thought that was oh, a British. Whatever. Bloody. I was yeah, thinking I of a little like a blood. blood. It's true crime blood. after all, but I'm a, glad a we're wrong. Blood cake. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we're wrong. Okay. Any other days or... They're all mediocre in my mind. Honestly, let's move on through the day. None of those <laughs> excited me. Okay, well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Every true crime consumer listening right now is familiar with the age-old trope of murder occurring between spouses. Two people combine their lives, profess their love in front of family and friends, and make each other the center of their respective universes. It's unclear how a husband or wife can go from being madly in love with you to wanting to kill you. But clearly, as we know, it happens, and it's always happened. It's emotionally confusing and enormously sad, but... It happens. What we're far less familiar with in regards to these archetypes are the casualties of such scenarios, mainly the children at the center of these two figures. What do they observe, see, experience, and feel as the unthinkable unfolds around them? The story we're about to tell you may be the most comprehensive look into such a crime that we've ever shared with you. 
and it's guaranteed to be a story that you can't look away from. So today's case takes us back to Sunday, December 31st of 1989. Songs topping the charts were Rhythm Nation by Janet Jackson, We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, and Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins. Movies and theaters were Glory and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. A true classic. Quite. The setting for today's case is Mansfield, Ohio, which is a city in the north central part of the state. The community was started in 1808 and named after the United States Surveyor General, Jared Mansfield. The United States Conference of Mayors voted Mansfield as one of America's most livable cities. And in 2000, Mansfield was ranked the fifth best place to raise a family in the U.S. Mansfield is where our first degree, Collier, grew up with his two parents. His father, Dr. John Boyle Jr., and his mother, Noreen. And a side note, John Boyle went by Jack, for the most part. When I was five years old, we lived in Virginia on a naval base. And we moved from Virginia to this small town in Ohio called Mansfield, Ohio. It's sort of right in the center of the state. It is very Midwestern, stereotypical Midwestern. Cornfields, farmhouses, rural community, urban community, lots of poverty, But also on the flip side, there's this undertone of also affluence. There's a lot of doctors and wealthy families, old money, a mishmash maybe, or a collision of different backgrounds in this small town community. It's in Richland County. Famously enough, there's a film called Shawshank Redemption. There's a prison that they shot it in. That prison is in uh, Mansfield. (laughs) It's called the uh, Ohio Reformatory. Okay, so hold the phone. The Shawshank Redemption is an epic movie, and we have to take every opportunity we can to gush about movies like this. So since Collier brought it up, Shawshank Redemption is based off the 1982 Stephen King novella. It's a film about two men, played by Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, who are imprisoned in the Ohio Reformatory. One of them is a banker who's wrongfully convicted and sentenced to life for murdering his wife and her lover, which is going to be quite ironic here later. And by the end of the film, one man claimed his redemption by escaping the prison and starting his life over. It's an epic movie. If you haven't seen it, now's the time. I love that aside, Alexis. So back to Collier and his family. The house they moved into in Mansfield was this beautiful, picturesque one. And we're looking at it right now. It literally has a picket fence outside, like perfect lawn. Everything just looks, it looks like one of those little houses, like a playhouse that you buy. And yeah. Like as a kid, because it's like absolutely perfect. And if you look closely at the shutters, there's little heart cutouts. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like oh in the shutters. God, see that. And Collier said those had been there since he, you know, his parents bought the house. So it's really just as cute as can be. Everything's in its right place. Yeah. It really is. So to understand this story requires us to dive deeply into the background of this family. So here's more on Collier's parents. Noreen Boyle was 44 years old. John was 46 years old. And like Alexis said, he commonly went by Jack. They were 17 and 19, respectively, when they met. They dated for five years before they got married in 1967. And it wasn't for another 10 years until they had their son, Collier. And as he mentioned before, the family lived in Virginia prior to moving to Mansfield. And in Virginia, Jack had worked as a doctor for a Navy clinic. My parents both came from very humble beginnings, very poor families, you know, uh, poor, not poor. 
working class, you know, immigrant families. My father being Italian Irish, my mother being German Irish. And they both got scholarships to the University of Pennsylvania, where my mother graduated with a dental degree and a four year program in three years and became a dental hygienist. Collier's dad ultimately became a doctor. Jack had his own medical practice that specialized in Medicaid and Medicare cases, which can bring in a lot of money. It's estimated that one in 13 residents of Richland County were a patient of Dr. Jack Boyles. I grew up in what I considered was the normal American family. Dad went to work, mom was home, and I went to school. With a busy doctor father and mom staying at home to care for Collier, the Boyle family took on a very familiar archetype. My father was never around because he was either working or what I would come to find out later on in my life were numerous affairs with different women, even out of state. This truth about Collier's father was difficult for a little boy to process and understand. I sort of look up to my father, but my father is also... I'm afraid of my father most of my life because he has a very violent temper. He's a big guy. He's like six foot three, like 200 pounds. He's a big dude, you know? And when you're a kid, that's a daunting individual. Collier's father worked a lot. He had numerous affairs and he had a temper. Collier has a grasp on all of this now, but at the time, it's all he knew. Kids normalize what they know. And he would have had no idea that life could have been any other way. This was life, and he thought it was normal. This was something he was used to. He would get angry and throw and break things, and it was scary growing up. So I knew my father had a bad temper. My mother had a temper, but not like that. You know, my mother would keep me in line. But I was a good kid and normal. And I think that a lot of the dynamic changed as we got into Mansfield. In this small town, my father went from working for the Navy and working in a hospital that he ran in, on a naval base into working at a hospital in town. And then he started his own private practice. I could tell that things were changing the family dynamic. My father was definitely not home as much as he was before. And there, was a, there seemed to be an air of tension between my parents. Collier noticed more shifts within the family over the next few years, especially after there was a big addition to the Boyle family. The beginning of 1989, my mother wanted to adopt a baby from Taiwan, from China. And from what I understood sort of is that there were some arguments and things. I don't think my father really wanted that. So I was supposed to go with my mother to Taiwan. And I had an asthma attack the day day I was going to leave to go to China with my mother. So I didn't go to Taiwan. And my mother was gone for two weeks. And I was with my father solely. Collier was normally under the sole care of his mom. And he had a miserable time under his father's care. That was when I saw a side of my father that I had never seen before. He was nasty, vulgar to me, called me a stupid little fat boy. His father, Jack, was extremely abusive to Collier when she wasn't there. You know, there to monitor the dynamics and care for their son. He was chasing me around the house, throwing things at me, called me a pussy. Like, my father got started getting really aggressive towards me, like, in, I would say, mid-1988. You know, I would get into sports, but I wasn't that athletic because not that I'm not an athletic person or was an athletic kid, I had asthma. So it was really hard to be run and jump and play and play sport when you can't breathe. He would throw the baseball at me, like, try to hit my head try to hit me in the balls with the baseball, things like that. 
And unfortunately, the dynamic didn't improve when Collier's mother returned with his new sister, Elizabeth. In fact, things seemed to worsen. There were dynamics that were shifting in the house. There was more arguments between my parents that I had seen. It was after my mother came back from China and after I'd had this horrific experience with my father while she was gone. And I was just completely terrified of my father at that point. And my father would be very violent with me. And then he would do the apology thing and, oh, Bumper, come here. And, oh, it's okay, buddy. I love you. And then it was just very, you know, typical gaslighting, typical <laughs> sociopathy, very, ooh, you know, uh, hot and cold. Of course, Collier didn't have the capacity as a child to understand the abuse he was subjected to. But in hindsight, it's very clear. Also, for those who don't know, gaslighting refers to a specific type of manipulation, where the manipulator is trying to get someone else to question their own reality, memory, or perceptions. This is typically done in an effort to gain power or control over a situation. And it comes from the 1938 play Gaslight, which was turned into a movie in 1944. And a husband starts messing with his wife's perceptions of reality in order to get her committed to an asylum and steal her inheritance. So he dims the gaslights in her home and turns it back on again. She says, what's going on? He says, you're seeing things over and over again. And this is a term now that's used in psychology. And it's exactly what was happening to Collier. It was too difficult to combat since this was his father. And his father held all the control in the family. When someone is that way with you growing up, you can never fully be yourself around them. You know, he would call me gay because I was very artistic growing up. You know, so he would, oh, your mother's making you into a little faggot. That sort of aggressive abuse started happening, like, towards the end of 1988 into 1989. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words then phrases and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, 
that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree 50 at factorymeals.com slash degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. The real real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. In hindsight, Collier realized that there was a correlation between his father's increasingly abusive behavior and a particular event he recalls from his childhood that happened just prior. On a rare day when Collier was without his mother and alone in his father's care. Memorial Day weekend of 1989, my father took me to a barbecue at at what he said was a patient's house. Guess what? This barbecue wasn't at a patient's house. My father told me that she was a patient and he was looking after her. She was very sick. Collier met the woman. At this party, he introduced me to a woman named Sherry. She was like 27, but I didn't think anything of it. I believed him. Sherry was Sherry Campbell. And pay attention to this name because Sherry will become significant later on. So Jack took Collier to this barbecue. I had a lot of fun because these people were uh, not normal people my mother would have me hang out with. They lived out in the middle of the country. They raced squads around. They drank beer. They were fun country folk that wanted to have a good time, listen to country music. Not my sort of prim and proper people that my mother and father normally hung out with. So I had fun. At the end of the party, Collier picked up on something. And then later on that night, like he hugged her and gave her a peck on the lips. But it was like a very benign sort of thing. Uh, But I witnessed that, and I kind of filed that in the back of my head. Collier really didn't think much of this interaction he witnessed. Remember, he's a child. But it was a little off enough for him to file it away. A few weeks later, he saw something that made him go back to that file about Sherry and his father. Flash forward to a few weeks later, it was Father's Day. And my father brings me to his office. Collier went with his father to run errands. First, they picked up paperwork from the medical office. And then his father wanted to pop into a tanning bed at a salon real quick. I know, what? Tanning salon? It's the late 80s, remember. So Collier's dad pulls up to the tanning salon. 
Like, I'm going to go tan really fast and, and you can wait in the car. Okay, no problem. I've done that before. It's not a big deal. When we get to the tanning place, Sherry is there again, who I'd met before. I was like, huh. Now, Collier mentioned that his dad engaged in several affairs. And for all we know, Sherry was no different than the others. But it's definitely suspect to shamelessly expose your children to this behavior, especially if you're betraying their mother, your spouse. But during this exchange, Collier witnessed his father give Sherry a much more passionate kiss than the first time he'd seen them together. Collier also noticed a ring on Sherry's finger, which looked a lot like a ring his mom had and wore. And Collier apparently pointed this out during this exchange. He was sitting there with Sherry and his father and said, my mommy has a ring just like that. Well, plot twist, it was his mother's ring. Their dynamic had totally shifted. I was like, okay, this is weird. I've never seen my father behave like this, really. And he kissed her. They French kiss. Ooh. And I saw that and I was like, okay, this isn't normal. We get in the car. My father says, it's going to be our little secret, buddy. That, I think, was the first time that my father had ever asked me to lie to my mother. So I'm going through all this sort of wave of emotions. We go out later that night for Father's Day to this rib place. And we we eat dinner and all. But I'm, like, internalized because I lied to my mother. That night I got really sick, just, like, sick to my stomach. And I think it was because I was, like, so guilty of lying to my mother, something I had never done before. The guilt continued to eat at Collier. The next morning I just was so overwhelmed with guilt. And that I lie to my mother. I say, Mommy, I need you to sit down. I would need to talk to you. And my mom's like, okay. And I get her to sit down in our front porch area. And I say, Mommy, I, I think Daddy's having an affair. And I told her about Sherry. And I said, her name is Sherry. I saw Daddy kiss her in a way that's not a friendly kiss like you and Daddy kiss people. And it was a different kind of kiss, Mommy. And my mother was very calm. And she said, thank you for telling me. And I'm, I'm not pleased that you lied to me, but it's okay. Like, don't worry. And she got up and she obviously called my father because she was livid. Now, if you're wondering where the storyline is going, pay attention because this is a pivotal turning point. Essentially, my mother had apparently called my father and said, you're an asshole. I'm divorcing you. You involved our son. Collier's mother had known all about the various affairs that her husband had engaged in previously. She could handle the personal disrespect. But Jack crossed a line when he involved Collier. She would not tolerate her husband manipulating her son to lie about his affairs. At that moment, a switch flipped. She was done. That would sort of be the beginning of the end. And it turned into them getting a divorce. And we sort of played family but it was very contentious. Beyond the tension in the house, the increased fighting and hostility, there was a new unexpected visible shift that Collier observed in his father as well. My father then got into this whole sort of weird vibe where he started wearing cowboy boots and he bought a truck, <laughs> like a pickup truck. Like my father had a Range Rover. My father uh, became sort of this guy that he wasn't. He went from doctor you know, sort of prim and proper, educated dude to, like, country, country guy. And wearing cowboy boots and, and jeans, which was really bizarre. And over the course of those next several months, when I would see my father, he would say things to me like, you know, how's that stupid bitch your mother doing? 
my mother would say, you know, say to me, like, don't worry, honey, your father loves you in his own sick, weird way. So I was like right smack in the middle of a divorce as a kid. And I was really confused. Your heart really breaks for Collier, especially if you yourself were a child who found themselves between two parents in the throes of a messy divorce. But it was about to get a lot worse. By this point, Collier's mother had filed for divorce after 22 years of marriage, citing mental cruelty and gross neglect from Jack. The Boyles were in the process of negotiating their finances, and Noreen specifically wanted alimony in one of their properties. Yes, and in response, Jack Boyle was attempting to have he and Noreen's adoption of their daughter, Elizabeth, declared invalid, which... If you can glean from what we've told you so far, this adoption of Elizabeth was very, very important to Noreen. Um, And what a fucking dig and way to rub salt in the wounds. Like you're trying to spite this child in addition to just fighting me back on the divorce. I mean, it seems pretty brutal. Needless to say, things at the Boyle home were not good. You could cut the tension with a knife. It was really bad when my father would come home. Despite the contentious situation, the holidays were approaching, and Collier's mother was determined not to have Christmas ruined for Collier and his new sister, Elizabeth. The family attempted to maintain a shred of normalcy. Christmas came and went, and while tense, the family survived it. Then came those sleepy days between Christmas and New Year's Eve. The date was December 30th, 1989. Collier's mom remained in the holiday spirit despite the crumbling marriage. Family was stopping by, friends were stopping by, despite everyone's awareness of the impending divorce. Everyone attempted to keep the energy light and happy, and they succeeded at that. At the end of the night on this day, Collier had all but forgotten about the hostility within this family at home. He says goodnight to his mom, as well as his grandmother, who was staying with him that night. Then Collier and his sister Elizabeth go to sleep. I go to kiss my mother goodnight, and I give Grammy a hug and everything. I say, I love you, mommy. I love you, Grammy. And... I go to sleep. Collier gets in bed, but he's not asleep for long. 3.18 in the morning, I look. I I get woken up out of a dead sleep. I was a very hard sleeper when I was a kid. I still am. Something woke me up, and I believe it was a scream. A scream in the middle of the night. Collier is frozen in fear and unsure of what to do next. I was petrified in my bed, and my door was always open to my bedroom. Right? I didn't close my door when I was sleeping or anything like that. I kept the bedroom door open all the time. The strange noises continued. I heard this really loud thud. And I counted. And it was about a minute and a half later. I heard, And I heard this, like, muttering happening, this, this male voice speaking very low. And I thought it was my father. And then another, maybe, like I said, 90 seconds later, I hear another loud thud. And I'm just, like, petrified in my bed, holding my covers. I start to hear these footsteps walk down the hallway. And I can tell it's my father. And I can see out of my peripheral vision as I'm laying. I see out of the corner of my eye these feet stop in my doorway. And they stop there for probably what seemed like an eternity, but probably maybe five seconds or so. And they went on and walked down the stairs. And then I didn't hear anything. I had eventually fell back to sleep because I was terrified. In the morning, Collier had hoped that the strange incident 
that he had heard in the middle of the night was nothing big. But that wasn't the case. The next morning I woke up, it was probably like 7 o'clock in the morning. I ran into my mother's bedroom, and my sister Elizabeth was in there, in the bed. Call your sister Elizabeth is there, but their mother wasn't. I knew something happened to her. I'm immediately in this mode of looking for blood on the sheets. The sheets were all messed up. And I'm looking for blood. I don't see any blood or anything like that. I'm totally, you know, freaked out. I ask Elizabeth, what, what happened? What, what happened? And she says to me, I don't know. Remember, baby Elizabeth had just been adopted from Taiwan months prior. She was still learning English. Plus, she was a baby after all. Elizabeth also commonly slept with Noreen at night, so she would have seen her before falling asleep. Collier moved through the house searching for his mom. And I went downstairs and I confronted my father, who was sitting on the couch in a waist towel. he just gotten out of the shower. And I said, where's my mother? And he looked at me very blankly. Collier's father looked up casually. He was watching CNN and he looks at me and he goes, well, mommy took a little vacation, Collier. I said, what do you mean? Before I can even start to launch into what I'm saying, my grandmother comes into the room and she's like, what's going on, Jack? And he's like, oh, Noreen and I got into a fight. Collier's dad then launched into an explanation of the fight that prompted Noreen to leave the house and go on a quote-unquote little vacation. He starts telling me this whole story and he says he was there on the couch sleeping. They had gotten into a fight. She came down and threw credit cards at him. They got into an argument. He saw these headlights at the end of our driveway and he said my mother threw her purse at him, threw these credit cards at him and stormed out of the house and got into this car and drove away. Collier's dad went on to speculate that it was probably Noreen's best friend, Shelly, who picked her up. Then, unprompted, Collier's dad launched into the reasons why they wouldn't be calling the police to report Noreen missing. He immediately launched into this whole thing of, we're not going to phone the police, because we're not going to call the FBI, which was super weird to me. Like, why would you call the FBI? Like, I, at 11 years old, I was like, that makes no sense. But he just says that we're not going to talk to anyone, you're not going to tell anybody, you can't call anyone. Like, and I'm just sitting here thinking, buddy, like, literally, where the fuck is my mother? Like, my mother had never left. I heard all this stuff go on the night before. Like, I fear the worst. Elizabeth comes down out of bed and, you know, comes downstairs or whatever. And I bring her into our family room area. And my father is like talking to my grandmother and I sit her down in this little rocking chair we had. And I said, Elizabeth, what happened to mommy? And she kept saying to me, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm just like, I'm freaked out. But I know something is rotten in Denmark. You might be wondering why, out of nowhere, this 11-year-old little boy is thinking the worst-case scenario. After all, Noreen and Jack Boyle were in the throes of a messy divorce. Isn't it possible that Noreen could have stormed out and left? Messy divorces, unfortunately, happen all the time. But Collier's mind went to the worst-case scenario. And that's because, even at the young age of 11 years old, Collier knew that his father had, in fact, murdered his mother. And here's why. 
about a month before all this craziness happens. Mid-November of 1989, my mother and I are driving to a restaurant called Bob Evans. We were going to get dinner. And my mother confides in me. She says, Collier, I want you to know something. If something happens to me and I just disappear, know that I would, I would never leave you, Collier. But you need to know that your father is very dangerous and has mafia connections. And if I go missing, I would never leave you. He did something to me, and he probably had me killed. That's what she said to me. It was bad. My mother had alluded to my father murdering her. Imagine an 11-year-old boy listening to his frightened mother tell him this. I mean, the confusion and the fear that he must be having. Just think of how desperate and scared Noreen must have been if she had felt that she needed to tell Collier all of these things. I'm literally like listening to this going, what the fuck is happening? But I'm listening to my mother. I love my mother. I'm like, okay, mommy, I understand. And now Noreen was gone. Well, now my mother has gone missing. I hear all this stuff happen the night before in the middle of the night that scares the living shit out of me. My mother is now gone, has never left like this ever. But even at just 11 years old, Collier not only knew the truth, but he knew what needed to be done. I knew when I woke up on December 31st, 1989, I knew that my mother was missing and that she was most likely dead because of what I heard. And I immediately sprung into action. I went on autopilot. I went from, I'm sad my mommy's gone because I was to I know she's not coming back and I need to deal with this because this motherfucker is not going to get away with this shit. I knew that my father killed my mother that night. I knew that that happened. I knew when she wasn't there the next morning, she was dead. I just didn't know how it happened. So I went into this mode of he's not going to get away with it. He's not going to win. You know, I'm going to find out what happened to my mother if 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 it kills me. Collier heard a scream and two thuds in the middle of the night. The next morning, his mother was gone. Noreen had warned her son that this could happen for a very specific reason. Because she didn't want her husband, Jack, to get away with making her disappear. Collier had an unbreakable bond with his mother, one that remained even in her absence a bond that drove a then 11-year-old to swear that his father would never get away with this. However, Collier's protector from his abusive father was now gone, and Collier was left under the control of Jack Boyle. The mystery of what happened to Noreen and the harrowing events of what would lead to the answers will shock, awe, and frankly break your heart. Double lives, twisted lies, and family ties and more, all to be revealed next week in part two out of three of this story. And Collier will be with us for the next two weeks as well, but thank you to him so much for telling his story to us. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Jack Vanek, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at the first degree. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and also some not true crime stuff. And tomorrow we will have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, 
Only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that close. I don't even remember the days. That's I how don't either. They were. They're so bad. What Lamington were they? Lambing blood. Happy Bloody Cakes blood Day, Australians. <laughs> Bye. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree. Love you, Jer. Producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Producing an additional writing by Taylor Rogers. Producing Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode are The Mansfield Journal, Forensic Files, GoEerie.com, The Eerie Daily News, Richland Source, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source, plus course documents.